This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, Matt. We're back at it again, dude. Hey, we're back. Yeah, it feels good to be back. (laughs) Yeah. I've been missing the graveyard. Now, granted, I sit in here a lot. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah, but it's not the same, you know. It, it, it's not the graveyard unless we're doing this, you know. Yeah, it is fun to be back. We enjoyed we enjoyed some time off, spent some time with family. Um, I, I don't I don't know. I, I worked the whole time, so <laughs> yeah. it wasn't a vacation. I mean, I worked all but one one day. I got one extra day off. But, I, I, even, I worked on the holiday. Yeah, so. that sucked, man. But, I hate it. We wanted to thank you guys for, you know, hanging out and waiting on us. Um, it was good to have a little break. Uh, we still researched because this week's episode is quite intensive. Um, and you'll see probably by the name of the episode, but yeah. when we get into it. Intensive is an understatement. <laughs> right. Um, but we thank you for waiting on us. Um, also, we wanted to say that if you have not yet Go over and check out the website. Um, We've got links to Patreon where you can become a patron and get access to our bonus episodes and some other special perks that we're working on and going to throw out there to you and stuff that we mail you. Um, Also, there are links to buy merch. And when you click on the item, the design that you like, then scroll down to the bottom of that page and there's links to find it on different stuff. Right. Uh, the first page will be T-shirts, but you can scroll down to the bottom and get mugs, stickers, pillows, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, baby onesies. Yeah, all that stuff. I'm, and I'm, and when you click the T-shirts, there there's different styles of T-shirts. Right. So you can get hoodies or a long sleeve T-shirt, or I think there's a tank top in there. Yeah. And then when you choose that, then then you can choose what color right. shirt you want. And yeah, it's it's pretty cool, but the the trick is you got to scroll all the way down and pick one, and then then you get to pick the next thing. Right. So it, it's not like, hey, here's a here's a, a a link for everything we have. the The links are are stair stepped. Right. So right. We we've been getting some feedback that some of you guys have not been able to find the links to some of the things that we've talked about here, like the, the mugs or a certain style shirt. That's how you do it. But again, if you still have problems, you know, messages in the group. I, I know that um, I, I'm not I'm not always uh, available, but, you know, Amanda or Adam or Ashley um, at, at some point, you know, can can help you along and and get it figured out. We we just appreciate the fact that you want to go there and buy some. Oh, so. sure. Sure. It, it makes us feel special that you want to wear our logo around. Um, we also wanted to say on the merch topic 
that um, congratulations to our giveaway winner, Sarah. Um, we've got your info. We're going to ship that stuff out to you. She lives at, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and um, her phone number is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I bet Sarah went, no, 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 no. So no, we're just kidding. But congratulations, Sarah. And we will get that stuff out to you very soon. Now, a little bit of stuff here in the future that we want to talk about. Next episode, we don't normally do this, but we're going to go ahead and tell you. Next episode, we're doing Champ, the Lake Champlain monster. Now, the reason I tell you that is because what we're going to do this weekend is we're going to put up a little survey type thing on Twitter and in our Facebook group and allow you to pick the following episode. So we'll give you a couple options of which one y'all want to hear more and y'all vote. And then we will do that one, the episode after champ. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to give you some options just to keep from getting 400 suggestions. Right. And you know, so we don't get, man, you guys are doing an episode of my grandmother's backyard, man. It's <laughs> freaky. Right. And we Maybe. Yeah. But I, I, I bet we, if we Googled your grandmother's backyard, we're, we're not going to get much. So. No. <laughs> right. So we'll give you a couple options and let y'all pick between those two. Now, before we get into tonight's episode, let's take a quick potty break and let's hear from It's Haunted. What now? Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, and I'm excited to tell you about my brand new podcast called It's Haunted. What now? It's a podcast that brings you true stories about haunted objects and the owners who unknowingly welcome them into their lives. Join me as I share these creepy, spooky, and downright terrifying stories. You can find It's Haunted, What Now? on your favorite podcatcher or at hauntedpod.com. All right, Matt. So what are we talking about tonight? Okay, so tonight we're going to be talking about what the f*** is going on in national parks <laughs> right oh my god <laughs> now now look i we're going to talk tonight about the the missing 411 cases or uh, just a few of them because m- man there's thousands mm-hmm. um but we're going to be discussing these cases about people that have had these mysterious disappearances and or deaths inside the national parks and tonight's stories are going to focus on North America, but this is a situation that has occurred in the UK and in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, I mean, I mean, I was familiar with it. I had, I had heard some of the stories, but when I started looking at some of these other stories, what in the world, man, know, man. I'm like, these seem like they're, completely fictionalized for a book Mm -hmm. and they're not i mean they've been researched and researched and researched um by this gentleman and it it is remarkable so the gentleman i'm referring to is david politis and david politis is a former california police officer and crypto cryptozoologist see i got it out gonna be one of those nights Uh, yeah (laughs) We don't have too many really crazy names. <laughs> which is good. Tonight, which is good. So he was well known already for his research uh, on Bigfoot. 
And so he had written a book about Bigfoot. Like I said, he's a retired police officer or semi-retired. He had worked with the SWAT team. He was a detective. I mean, this guy is a real honest-to-God cop. So he knows what he's doing when it comes to research and investigation. So this is not, you know, some journalist that's not, there's anything wrong with journalists, but a journalist (laughs) who's gone out and just collected a bunch of stories and said, hey, here's my book. You know, this guy really spent the time going to these places and looking into these stories. So it was while he was doing research after his Bigfoot book, International Park, when an off-duty ranger approached him and and said, you know, hey, Mr. Politis, I know who you are, and I've got a concern that I was wondering if you could help me with. We have had some really bizarre missing persons cases throughout the national parks. And it is very disturbing. And I was wondering if this interested you enough to do some research on it. Well, he took the reins. And so David Pilatus began to research these strange, unique, out-of-the-ordinary missing persons cases that have occurred in and around the national parks in the United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. And the way he describes it is, after the first thousand, they weren't seeing a lot of connections. You know, they, yes, they were weird, but they all seemed unique and individual, and there wasn't a lot that they could piece together. Then he says after couple thousand similarities start to appear mm-hmm. and then once he starts getting into the three and four thousand cases he really begins to see some trends occur so part of what he he did to bring all of his research together is politis identifies 58 geographical clusters in north america um spread out in and around the 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 Great Lakes area, um, the Western National Parks like Yosemite, Grand Canyon National Parks, you know, Eastern um, like Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and many, many more. None of which these clusters appear in the central U.S. and Canada. So if you look at a map, which you can, um, his map of these clusters is available online. It looks like somebody just said right down the center of Canada and the U S and said, all right, nothing's going to happen here. Mm -hmm. It can happen to the West it can happen to the East, but stay out of the middle. And and that's the way it looks. So inside these clusters, he was able to spot these similarities. And so, um, Adam, let's kind of go into what these similarities are that he's noticed, because there there's more than just a few. Right. There there's a bunch of them. So one of the one of the ones is bloodhounds, when they're brought out to one of the scenes, they can't find a scent trail. And a lot of the handlers have told Politis that, you know, the dogs are acting weird. They'll kind of go a short distance, act like they're onto something, and then they'll just start walking in circles. Yeah. And come back and sit down by their handler. Now, I own a hound. 
he's Beagle and Bassett mix. So he is a scent dog. And all he wants to do is chase a scent. And I don't even have him as a working dog, you know? Right, yeah. So these dogs, they live for that scent trail and for finding people. Right. And it doesn't matter what they're finding. You give them a scent, they want to work it because they get a reward for it. And that's what they're bred to do. Yeah. And they love it. Yeah. Even untrained, that's what these dogs do. Exactly. So you can imagine the amount of training that goes into a, a police scent dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this dog's job. Right. He's going to do it. He wants to do it. Right. And when a dog is unable to find a scent like that and acts weird, you know, that's that's an oddity that handlers and investigators are going to take note of. Now, another one is that bad weather will blow in right after the person is reported missing. That hinders the search yeah. for that person. Yeah. Not necessarily bad weather that would cause this person to go missing. Right. I mean, I, I think everybody is familiar with some type of story where you hear of a group or an individual that gets separated from the rest of their party, bad weather moves in, typically snow or ice, mm-hmm. and it isolates them to the point where they can't be found. Right. That's not really what we're talking about because that's a logical explanation. Exactly. Okay. So we're talking about fine weather, you know, for to be out, to be hiking, to be hunting, to be fishing, and an individual will go missing and once once they realize hey we're we're missing a person you know let's organize a search party you know let's call in the ranger services and let's go let's go look for this person that's when the bad weather sets in yep. then all of a sudden a tornado pops up yeah you know so to me and we'll we'll kind of get into some of these as we go but to me that is either I don't want to say coincidence because I'm I'm not really a big fan of saying things are a coincidence. Well, I, I think even if you wanted to say coincidence, it's happened too often. Right. Right. To to just say, oh, that's a coincidence. Man, right. And that's and that's a that's a really common coincidence. Right. So either something or someone can predict the weather and say that, okay, this is gonna happen, you know, at five PM on Saturday, so I'm going to do something to this person at 4 p.m., or they're able to control the weather, you know, so they know that a search party's coming out, so they stir up the weather right, to hinder the search or something. Yeah. You know, because we got a lot of, Matt and I have a lot of theories yeah. in this episode. We got a lot of somethings. Yeah, we got, we got a lot of stuffs <laughs> that we'll throw at you, but... Nothing that we say is going to be conclusive, and probably half of what we say is going to sound like we're crazy because that's right. what this whole thing is about. <laughs> yeah. Um, another similarity is that they're all clustered in certain areas, usually, like Matt was talking, and they're usually around bodies of water or national parks. Also, if people are found alive, they have massive memory loss, and that's not usually a common occurrence when you find a missing person. They don't normally have that much memory loss. That's right. They usually have some story of, of what happened, even even if they have gone into some level of hysteria or they're malnourished or dehydrated, they they still have an idea of what happened to them. Well, and they'll be able to tell you that. 
Right. They'll be able to tell you, well, I was so malnourished that I started hallucinating and I lost my way. Or, you know, they will know because they will have been in their right mind and conscious before that. Yeah. So they'll know what happened. Um, If they if the body is found dead, cause of death is nearly impossible to determine. You know, a lot of times they'll say, oh, well, they were scared to death. Yeah. Something. Or or the uh, default. They died of exposure. Yeah. That one's a big one that you hear a lot. But again, just like with the memory loss, there's there's evidence of death from exposure to the elements. You know, if you if you die of hypothermia, you know, if you die of dehydration because it's too hot, um, th- those things are evident when you when you examine a body, mm-hmm. and they're they're coming across individuals that appear to have died from hypothermia, but the physiology doesn't match. Right. You know, they're they're not seeing the things that you know a coroner or a medical examiner would expect to see if he said, oh, well, we found this guy and he's been in the woods for three weeks. Right. You know, well, it's it's been about 25 degrees for the last three weeks. This guy froze to death. Then he's examining the body and he's like, this guy didn't freeze to death. Right. And you'd expect to see frostbite on nose, toes, fingers. Right. And you don't. Right. That's weird. Um, Yeah. But uh, just mind boggling. Anyway. They're found in areas that they could not have reached by foot, and they're found in areas that have been previously searched multiple times. Now, Politis gives an example of this where there is a boy that has been lost, and searchers are looking for him, and they take the same path to go to the search area every morning for days to search for this boy. And on the final morning of the search, they're walking down this path, heading to go search for him, and a tree has fallen across the path and the boy's body is laying on top of this tree. So it's not like they just overlooked him. Right. It's not like they missed, you know, seeing him in this one area off the side of the trail. They walked down this trail and now this body is blocking their path. Yeah. So in that case in particular, you know, the tree falls, the body's on top of the tree so if you're like, well, this wasn't here yesterday. Mm-hmm. So that either means one of two things. The tree fell and the body was placed on the tree or the body was in the tree when it fell. Right. Now, I don't know about you, but I've I've never really been a believer that dead bodies climb trees. No. Plus. Or, or wind up in trees. Right. I mean, that's, that's, if I had a dead body, putting it up in a tree Probably wouldn't be something I'd consider doing because I think, well, I can't get it up there. Yeah, I mean, even even a child's body is going to be heavy when it's dead yeah, weight. I'm not going to throw it. No. And most of the time when search parties take place, the way they have them functioning is that you're walking in basically a straight line shoulder to shoulder. And you walk a few feet and they tell you to look up, down, left, and right. Walk a few more feet, up, down, left, and right. So that you see every possible place and you don't overlook something. And they do it in a grid pattern. So if this body was up in the tree and they are walking past it and they're looking all around. If the tree falls and the body was already in the tree, you're going to see that body because it would have to be on the side of the freaking tree. Right. For it to be on top of the tree when it falls. Yeah. 
And so, and, and if you're thinking, oh, well, maybe this, this was just something that was missed by search and rescue. Well, Politis goes on to explain search and rescue uh, parties. They have found matchsticks that were, were used by the person that they're looking for. Right. A matchstick. You know, when they're finding things that are that small, something that could easily be overlooked by anyone, they're not going to overlook something like this. Right. Now, uh, people are often missing their clothes and shoes, and the clothes are often found neatly folded and shoes retied after removal. And this even happens in cases of small children who are unable to tie their shoes. Yeah, or or get themselves undressed. Right. And that, I mean, just to have, you know, people go back to the, oh, well, they took their shoes off because they were suffering from hypothermia, so they felt hot, so they pull their clothes off. Okay. Yeah, but they're pulling them off. And most of the time, these clothes are found within feet of where the person originally went missing. So there would not have been time for this person to start suffering from hypothermia right. before they started removing their clothes. So something else is causing them to remove their clothes or someone, something else is removing their clothes for them. Right. Now, investigators don't find tracks of anything, and they happen in areas with no known predatory animals and the bodies don't appear to be mauled. On that note, Politis has said, in U.S. and Canada, in the last 100 years, there have only been 14 fatal mountain lion attacks. So people always want to go back to the predatory cat. Yeah. I'm sorry, but you can't. It's an easy easy scapegoat. It is. But... (laughs) (laughs) But the statistics don't lie. You know, it's not it's not a plausible, rational explanation to say that every one of them was taken by a mountain lion when there's not enough evidence of mountain lions attacking humans. Right. You know, and, you know, and, and the same with with bears. You know, there's we've seen a lot of cases that Pilates investigated that were chalked up to bear attacks. Mm-hmm. And. You know, if if you if you talk to a park ranger, they they know what a bear attack looks like. Sure. And they also know where you would be to most likely encounter a bear. Mm-hmm. And some of these people are being found in areas where the bears aren't. Right. Or, or typically aren't. Right. So if you're in a place that doesn't have large predatory animals, how can you get taken by a large predatory animal? Right. Now, another one is many bodies are found in water, as we talked before, but the autopsies do not show that they drowned. So they have been placed in water. Um, there have been other other accounts that Politis has given of bodies that look like they have been placed feet down in a stream so that they're kind of standing up, you know, but they didn't drown. Yeah. They died of some other cause that cannot be determined. Uh, most victims are on either side of the spectrum for mental capacity. Either they have a disability or they are super smart, like genius level smart. So why would it be 
one of the two ends of the spectrum. Why not just average, you know, middle of the road guys like myself, you know? Right. And and the the curious thing about it is, you know, we're talking about people that if you if you knew them and you thought, boy, if they get lost in the woods, it's going to be a bad deal. You know, they're, they're going to have a really tough time surviving, you know, knowing what to do, figuring out a way to, to keep themselves warm or to get back to an area where they could be found all the way up to individuals that, I mean, they're, they're skilled outdoorsmen. Yep. I mean, we, you know, we're not talking about weekend warriors. We're talking about, you know, career, career fishermen, yep. you know, somebody that's been hunting for 40, 50 years. Guys that could build a, a shelter out of a coconut. Right. You know, right. So there's, you know, there, there's not evidence that it's, it's just these, these people that you would think, oh man, they, they would really struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm probably one of those people. <laughs> if, you, if you strung me out in the woods, you know, man, I, I, I might could figure out something, but if I'm out there too long, ooh, yeah. I'm, I'm a goner. Um, that's why we make a good team, Matt. I got you on that. That's sense. right. So, you know, Adam, Adam's going to, you know, be survivor man. Right. And he's going to, he's going to make sure that I don't, I don't go insane. <laughs> make sure Matt doesn't die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like the Daffy Duck Bugs Bunny thing. I'm going to be looking at Adam and he's going to begin to look like a chicken leg. Right. And Adam's going to be like, come on now, stay with me, yep. you know, eat this saltine. Smacking him on the face a few times. <laughs> <laughs> I got some Cheerios in a bag. Yeah, just you get four Cheerios today; it'll last you. Um, speaking of companions in the woods, the companions that these people were with before they went missing often say, "Well, somehow we just got separated." Turn my back for a minute, and they were gone. Yeah, and um, in some cases, not even really separated, just out of out of eyesight. Right. You right. know, I saw this person go behind this bush, you know, or go behind this tree line and gone. Yep. I turned around to look at something and turned back and they were gone. Right. Now, the FBI will often turn up in a lot of these cases, but they will just observe the search. They don't involve themselves. Um, Many of the bodies that are found don't show signs of lividity. So they were dead for a long time, but they don't look like they were laying in any certain position for blood to pool. Now, Matt, what does that sound like to you? We, yeah, we what, just what, talked about. Well, that. if I'm trying, if I'm trying to think about where you could be, and blood not pool in your body, you you got to be somewhere with with no or very little gravity, right? So space. Yep, it's the only place I can think of. Yeah, space or some interdimensional something with less gravity than we well, have. Well, you know, and I think Yosemite, I think they closed down their anti-gravity exhibit. Yeah, that was a, <laughs> that was a few years back. But Yeah, so so that doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, when, when you die, you know, gravity continues to work on your body. And uh-huh. your body's mostly water and a lot of blood, and that blood is going to quit pumping through your body. And it, it's going to just sink to the lowest point. Mm-hmm. So if you're on your back, you know, there's signs of lividity along your back, 
the backs of your arms, the backs of your legs. Right. If you're found face down, it's exactly the opposite. If you were found sitting up, you know, your feet and your legs would have the signs of lividity. And we're right. talking about victims that show no signs of lividity. Right. Almost like exactly like what Adam and I are saying, that they were suspended in a zero gravity and the blood just stayed exactly where it was. Right. And signs of lividity, if you don't know, they are darkened areas, almost black areas of the skin where the blood and fluid, like Matt said, will have pooled. Yeah. So it's a very obvious thing to notice. And even if you have a body laying somewhere and you roll them every few hours, there's still going to be bruised-looking places where the blood started to pull, because you're not going to be able to just, I mean, even in a rock tumbler, you're not going to be able to keep a body spinning enough to where you don't see signs of lividity. Another weird one is that most of the disappearances will happen around boulder fields or large areas of granite. And Yosemite National Park happens to be one of the largest granite boulder fields in the United States. And it also has some of the most disappearances that fit these criteria. Yeah. They, there's some there's some magic hoodoo going on. I'm telling there. you. They got something weird happening. There's all kinds of stuff. You know, we could we could do a show on Yosemite. Yeah. You know, it's really cool. Um, this is not so cool, but it's a, a extremely intriguing um that it's got this much activity. Right. Um the last criteria here we've got is that they normally happen between two and four PM. And Politis will rule out certain criteria to make sure that it's, you know, that it is one of these cases. And some of the things that he will rule out is animal predation, mental health issues or suicidal intent that a person wanted to disappear intentionally, like go off the grid, leave their life far behind um, any crime or human to human contact in that sense. Or drowning. And once all of these are ruled out, then he starts looking for these other oddities, similarities in the cases in order to determine that it is one of these missing 411 cases. Right. So this is these are the criteria that Pilatus uses to to say this is this is a case that fits what I'm looking at. Um, and by removing all the logical explanations, even if. It has been chalked up to that because there, as, as Adam said, there have been several of these cases that have been chalked up to predatory animals, but the evidence doesn't speak to that. Right. So e even if this is what they determined, you know, the, the evidence says something different and that that's something that that really will will draw David Pilatus in to say this is perhaps one of one of these strange cases. Right. Now, before we get into the cases, because um, Matt's got a few cases and I've got a couple cases, let's talk about a couple of these criteria in a little more depth here. The found in unexpected locations that we were talking about earlier. Politis gives examples of a couple of these, and one is David Allen Scott, two years old. On July 13, 1957, he went missing in the Twin Lakes area of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. Now, his father saw him, went into his camper for just a minute, and when he came out, the boy was gone. 
Now, the area didn't have much coverage. Visibility was good, but searchers couldn't find the boy until three days later. In order to find him, they had to go up one side of a nearby mountain, down the other side of it, and up the side of another mountain. Now, Politis said this boy could barely walk across the parking lot. There was no way that he could have walked that distance himself in that amount of time. Or period. Yeah, at all. Yeah, I couldn't make that journey. Yeah. There is no way this two-year-old kid did that. Well, if you couldn't make it, I know I could. <laughs> right? We'd, yeah. Both of us would be on the side of the first mountain. I, I, I'd lose my flip-flops 10 minutes into the wall. <laughs> right, you can't hike in flip-flops. Right? <laughs> See, that's why you'd never survive. You can't yeah. wear flip-flops out in the woods. Well, then I'm done. Yeah, if Matt has to put on shoes, he's screwed. Another uh, case that he talked about is a two-year-old boy named Keith Parkins. Now, he went missing in Ritter, Oregon on April 10th, 1952. He was with some family members. They went around one side of the barn. He, he went around the other, and he was not seen again until 19 hours later. And 15 miles away, he was face down on an iced over pond. Now, he was found alive. But this is the case that Politis brought Les Stroud, the survivor man, in to see if he could make this trek. So they went about the same time of year, same time of day, and he set Les Stroud off to do it. About halfway through this, Les Stroud said, I can't do this. You know, there's too much under. I can't see where I'm going. You know, I, there's no way that a two-year-old would walk 15 miles at night and do it. And Politis has said, if you have a kid and you put them out there in the woods, what are they going to do? After about 20 minutes or so of walking around, fiddling with stuff, playing with dirt, they're probably going to lay down and take a nap. Yeah, they're going to stop. Right. They're not going to continue to go. They're not going to walk for 15 miles. Yeah. Um, one of the other things is the water connection. And he, he, you know, talks about the bodies being found near water and all that. Now, Jelani Brinson is a 24-year-old college soccer star, and he was found in a golf course pond in Anoka, Minnesota. He went missing from a friend's home April 17, 2009, about 10.30 p.m., and investigators found his hat in one backyard and his shoes in another. But it had been raining for days, and the golf course was completely muddy, but Brinson's socks were completely clean. So, obviously, he didn't walk there, but his body was placed there. Also, the cause of death cannot be determined. He did not drown in that lake. So, what happened to him? Nobody knows. Tell. No. So, Matt, you've got some stories for us, some weird things happening here, so take her away. Okay, so... June 14th, 1969, six-year-old Dennis Martin went hiking with his father, his grandfather, and his nine-year-old brother. Now, after hiking for a while, the family comes to an open field where the boys begin to play. Now, soon after, another family reaches the field and approaches Mr. Martin. They ask, hey, can, can our kids and your kids play together? And, and he introduces himself, and oddly enough, the fa other family was named Martin as well. Uh, the, the boys begin to play hide-and-seek. So Mr. Martin sees his son Dennis go behind a bush at the edge of the field. Now, when the game is over, 
All the kids come out except for Dennis. Now, Mr. Martin goes over to the bush and he doesn't find his son. So he begins to frantically look for him, but doesn't see him anywhere. Now, after going back down the trail for about two miles, Mr. Martin comes back and says he can't find Dennis and that they need more help. So around 4 p.m., park rangers uh, arrive, or this, well, I'm sorry, this happens around 4 p.m., so the park rangers arrive around 5, so that gives enough time for Mr. Martin, you know, to have done his search and then bring in the rangers. So they search, no luck, heavy rain, here's the weather thing, heavy rain moves in around 8.30, making the search even more difficult, okay? So you, you've got six-year-old child, he, he's playing hide-and-seek, dad sees him go behind this bush, and then when it's all over, kid's gone. So no evidence, no sign, nothing. They, they can't find him. Now, around that same time, maybe about, 2,000 feet below the mountain, another family was at a ranger station asking about where they could go to see some bears, okay? So this family, their last name is Key. So this is the Key family that's wanting to view some wildlife. So the ranger tells them they should go up to an area called Rowan's, Rowan's Creek, and, and they should see some wildlife. Now, I meant to say this at the very top of the story because y'all are wondering, where in the hell is this happening? <laughs> this is uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Okay, so this is East Tennessee uh, where we're talking about. So I, I didn't mention that at the beginning, but that, that is where this is. So, so this, is, this is local, really, for Adam and I. I pretty mean, this is, this is pretty close to us. I mean, I, I've been to the Great Smoky Mountains mm -hmm. dozens of times. So this is what we're talking about. The, the, and the area of Rowan. Back. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of nervous. Right. Of course, you know, you, you hit Gatlinburg, you, you feel pretty safe. Yeah. You know, from this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Dolly Parton. And <laughs> I was abducted by Dolly Parton. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking Dolly Parton would save me. but So Dolly Parton and Bigfoot show up at my house <laughs> and they's like, come with us. And I'm like, do you got cookies? All right. I'm there. So... <laughs> So anyway, so so they uh, so the key family begins to head up towards Rowan's Rowan's Creek uh, to see some wildlife. Now, after a short hike, they hear what they describe as a loud, sickening scream, louder than what they would expect to hear. And right after that, Mr. Key's son says. Dad, look, there's a bear up on the side of the hill in the woods. So he looks and he says, son, I don't really think that's a bear. Mr. Key initially thought it was a man. You know, he, he's, he's seeing this figure in the woods. He's confident it's not a bear. He's not 100% sure it's a man, but it looks more like a man than a bear. So they... They continue their hike. It was a little weird, but they just kind of chalk it up as, well, somebody else, somebody else up there hiking, and, you know, it just looked kind of funny. Um, so they go home, 
un, unknowing that there was a search for a six-year-old boy going on just up the mountain at the same time. So this is how these two connect. When the Keys get home, and they, they live in the Knoxville area, when the Keys get home, they, they see the, uh, the report about Dennis Martin's disappearance in the Knoxville News Sentinel in the newspaper. And Mr. Mr. Key begins to think, you know, this time frame seems about the same as ours. So maybe what we saw up there is relevant. So he had read that the FBI was involved in the case and that the FBI had, a, you know, a park agent involved, you know, doing the investigation. So he reaches out to the FBI and, and he tells them what he saw. And he tells them, hey, you know, I'll be happy to, to meet y'all up there where we were hiking around Rowan's Creek. And I'll show you guys exactly where we were and where what we saw was. Okay. Now, here's the funny thing. So the FBI and the park ranger services, no, tell you what. You meet us at this other location outside of the park. And we'll, we'll talk to you about what you saw. Now, that seems kind of strange. You've got somebody that may be a potential eyewitness telling you, I can show you where I was and where what I saw was so you can investigate that area. Well, they don't they don't want to do that. They would just want to meet this guy outside the park and talk about it. OK. So. The the key family's Testimony, I guess you could say. Their report, it doesn't make it into the case file for Dennis Martin. Now, when David Politis gets a hold of this story and and he starts um, he starts investigating, he, he finds out some things about this case. Now, number one, Dennis Martin's father had not left the park in two months. He had an agreement with the FBI to be on site and informed on every detail on the case. But he was not informed of what the Key family saw until a reporter got wind of the story and went and talked to the Key family personally. And then that reporter passed that information to Mr. Martin and said, hey, you might want to know this. So when Politis meets the Martins, they tell him very politely, listen, um, we don't really want to talk about this anymore. You know, this happened a long time ago and we're, we're trying to, to put it behind us. And so Politis says, look, I, you know, this is what I do. Uh, just please just give me 15 minutes of your time. Trust me. There's, there's nobody else apart from yourself that knows any more about this case than what I do. So Mr. Mr. Martin asked, David Politis, he's like, what do you know about uh, about what this key family saw? And Politis is like, well, you know, not a whole lot. You know, tell me what you know. He says, I know you're not going to find it in the case file because I wasn't made aware of it. But he said, there's something else that's not in that file or in the report, and you're not going to read it. He said, Part of what they reported was that whatever they saw walking around on that hillside appeared to be carrying something 
over his shoulder. A six-year-old boy, perhaps, Mm -hmm. you know, which begins to make you think abduction. Mm -hmm. But now remember, when Dennis went missing, he was in full sight of his father until he went behind that bush. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a parent. And and I know, I mean, I I keep a fairly close eye on my younger children when they're in the front yard. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm on I'm in the mountains. I'm on a hike. You know, there there's always a potential for danger there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be keeping a much closer eye. Do you not think that you know Mr. Martin would have seen another individual that would have abducted his son? Right. Somebody I mean, just walk up. Right. His hiding place is right there in full view. He knew exactly where he was. Right. And when he went there, he was gone. So that makes me think less of abduction and more something else. Right. But remember, whatever Mr. Key's son saw or what Mr. Key saw up in those woods was initially mistaken to be a bear or, mm-hmm. or another type of wild animal. And it was only when Mr. Key was able to look at it and focus to think, well, it's not a bear. It could be a person, you know, but the fact that they both said that it looked like it was carrying something over his shoulder wasn't reported and it's not in the case file. Right. So there is a possibility here that Dennis was abducted, but the question would be by what? Mm hmm. You know, not necessarily by whom, but by what? And and was what the Key family saw connected? Right. You know, in a lot of ways, we'll never know. But Dennis was never found. And to this day, there's not been any more evidence of what exactly happened to mm-hmm. him. So. And what you're mentioning in there, it brings up another point that we didn't talk about was the park service seems to hinder and withhold information about mm-hmm. these disappearances. Mm-hmm. And because it, your story was a prime example, you know, they didn't want to meet the witness in the park somewhere outside. They didn't tell the victim's family, but Politis had, has talked in several interviews um, and on his documentary about he has approached the National Park Service three different times with a Freedom of Information Act to get a list of missing persons for the parks. He has been denied three times because they tell him, oh, we don't have a list. Now, how in the world do you not have a list of missing people in your park? You've got a list of all these other things, you know, and he names off all the stuff that they have. They ended up telling him, well, if you want us to put together a list, it'll cost you $1.4 million for us to put together a list. That's what it'll cost. Yeah. And the reason they gave was ludicrous Mm -hmm. that they were either going to have to pay, you know, a special individual within the park service to go through and find all these things, or they were going to have to contract it out Mm -hmm. and the time and the money it would cost to, to do that to make copies of those files would equate to $1.4 million. Right. No, no no way. No, go to your police department 
and file a Freedom of Information Act for the names of missing people in your city. You can have it in less than a week. Right. You know, those those department chiefs can have it quickly. Yeah. And Parks Department is way bigger than they are, so they could get it a lot quicker, a lot easier, and you know they have it. Yeah. And, you know, Politis had even tried to uh, to use an author's exemption. Mm-hmm. Where he says, you know, I'm researching a book, so I need this information so I can complete my book. And he still didn't get it. And on top of that, was told that his books weren't in enough libraries to qualify for an author's exemption. Which is not in the books anywhere. Right. It doesn't say that at all. And, and, you know, there's no number associated with how many libraries your books have? I mean, what, what would that matter? Yeah. I mean, that's just, uh, we got to tell this guy something. Yeah. We well, gotta, let's tell him the most ludicrous thing we can come up with. We got to get him off the phone because we don't want to give this to him. That's right. You know, it, it's basically just them denying him information and denying his Freedom of Information Act yeah. request. And, so. you know, it, I, I can understand, too, where, you know, the the Parks Department could be thinking, okay, look, you know, this is what we got. This is all we were able to come up with. We let some private individual start going through this. The next thing you know, he's publishing a book that makes us look like a bunch of idiots. Mm -hmm. I get that. But the other side of that coin is, hey, two heads are better than one. This guy has researched other cases similar. I mean, they they know who he is. Mm -hmm. Um. He's gotten information on these cases before. Let's give him a crack at it. Yeah. Let's let him see what we got and and see if he's got something different or if he's got a, a different point of view that may help us figure out what happened to this kid. Right. You know, Which makes me think they know what's going on or they have kind of a good idea of what's going on. Right. And they don't want anybody else knowing. That's right. They don't want that getting out to the public. Yeah. So, you know, we start to wade in conspiracy theory waters here. Sure. But, you know, if the shoe fits. Right. You know, I mean, seriously. Or if the foo sh- No, let's not do that. <laughs> um, so I got a quick one here um, because this happened so many years ago that the details just aren't there anymore. But Politis includes it because... It hits a lot of the key points that all these other missing 411 cases do. Now, this is a girl named Lillian, and she went missing August 8th, 1897 at noon. So this is not a new occurrence. Now, she went missing in Massardis, Maine, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but it's 15 miles west of the Canadian border. And it's surrounded by lakes, rivers, and ponds. Lillian and her parents were blueberry picking. And they were there for just a short amount of time. And then her parents said that she just vanished. Now, they searched for an hour. And then they got some people in the area to help. By the following morning, there were 200 searchers there. And they were calling Lillian's name. They were hollering for her, you know, saying, we're friends. You know, your parents are looking for you. Where are you? Da 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 da. And, you know, it, it would be weird for this girl to be in the area and not respond to that. 
Because if you're lost and you hear somebody calling for you, you're going to respond. You don't want to be lost anymore. Well, on Tuesday, there were around 300 residents that arrived to search. And at 10 a.m., a guy named Burt Poland found her. Somewhere between two and three miles from where her parents last saw her. So you've got 300 people searching for her, and she's within two to three miles of where they last saw her. Now, like I said, there's not much detail on this and where they found her and how they found her. But they did interview Lillian, and she didn't say a whole lot because of she couldn't remember much, that, that memory loss that we were talking about. But she did make an interesting statement. She said, the sun shined all the time while I was in the woods. Now, keep in mind, the, the weather was partly cloudy, and she had been gone for two nights, so missing for 46 hours. The sun doesn't shine for 46 hours total. Yeah. And during, during this time, 1897, there's not going to be any area that has bright enough lights to mimic sunlight. So where was she during those 46 hours that was bright the whole time? Why can't she remember anything but the bright light? What does that sound like to you? What other cases that we haven't covered, but some of our friends have covered? To me, that sounds a lot like what you hear from abductees, UFO alien right. abductees. Yeah. They don't remember much, but they can remember, a, you know, seeing a bright light above them. They were laying there and there's a bright light above them while they were being examined or held or whatever. So memory loss found around, you know, in a park around all these lakes, bright light. We just talked about the maybe in space because of no lividity. I don't know. Right. Um. Yeah, that that story is is really strange, you know, and it's even it's made even more strange by the facts, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that, you know, she was found so close to where she went missing. Right. And there were so many people hunting her for so long. Yeah. You would think if she was that close, they would have found her within, you know, an hour or two. 300 people for 46 hours found two miles from where she was. Yeah. I mean, there's no way that they walked by her. Yeah, you know? right. And it, and it and it goes to um, to the idea that she wasn't there the whole time. Right. You know, she was somewhere else. Removed and then from the area. There. Right. Exactly. You know, which you know also, I mean, r- really looks like you know the abduction, mm-hmm. you know, stories. Sure. So, um. the The next one comes from Yosemite, which, as we talked about at the top of the show. Um, has its more than its fair share of of strange disappearances. It and somebody else's fair share. <laughs> That's right. It's it's taken up the slack for all the other parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, on July seventeenth, nineteen eighty one, a fifteen year old girl named Stacy Aris was on a trip with her father. They were on horseback and had ridden into a remote area called Sunrise Camps, which is approximately eight to nine thousand feet elevation. So they ride into an area that has cabins. Stacy goes into one of the cabins to change clothes. Now, Stacy comes out 
and and tells her father that she's going with one of the other group members who is is an older gentleman. They, you know, say he's about 70, 71 years old to a point about 100 feet away, 100 feet. That's not that far. And it was still within sight of the rest of the group. And she was going to go and take some photographs. So she had gotten her camera. You know, she had changed clothes. She's going to go over to this little area and take some photographs. The gentleman walks with her, but fatigues due to the higher elevation. He begins to have some trouble breathing and he sits down. So Stacy says she's going to walk a bit further to the lake, but it's still within view of everyone. And the description is that the lake was separated from the rest of the group by a very small line of trees. That small line of trees is not enough to it completely obstruct the view. I mean, she's not wandering into the woods. She's walking through, you know, a row of, you know, single to, to double stacked trees. You can see right through and right. see where she's going. So she walks through and gets to the lake, but never comes back. So when they realize, hey, she's not back yet, they go to look for her. the only thing they find is the lens cap to her camera just inside the small line of trees. Now, understand, as, as Adam said before, Yosemite has, you know, the largest boulder fields in the United States, you know, lots of granite, not a lot of trees. So not a lot of places for an individual to hide or disappear, disappear get lost in. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of places for an individual looking to do somebody harm to hide in. Right. Again, they reached this area on horseback. You know, yes, there were cabins there. Yes, there's a potential for somebody else to be up there, but there's not a lot of places for somebody to be up there, you know, looking to do someone harm and hiding out. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it would have been visible to more people. There would have been evidence that somebody was up there. Right. Um, so now in this case, uh, Politis files another Freedom of Information Act request. And a special agent from the Park Service contacted uh, Politis and and asked him, why do you want this? Which he's not supposed to do. Right. Um, You know, they know the law. And when I say they, I mean Politis. Mm -hmm. You know, they know the law. They know what they have a right to request, and they know that the people providing this information do not necessarily have a right to ask them why they want it. Yeah, they can't deny it based on why. Yeah, I mean, if I tell you, look, I want it to wallpaper my bedroom, they still can't deny it based on that. Right. Okay. So, again, he explains that he's researching a book, and he wants to include the case. And after a brief argument, the special agent tells Politis that, He's not going to get it now, you know, and initially he had told him, well, we don't have it. Then he tells him you're not going to get it. And he says, are you investigating a, a crime? No. He says, are there suspects? No. It's like, well, is there an active investigation going on? He says, no. But giving you this information may corrupt any future investigation. Well, look, this is years after this has occurred. 
And Pilatus explains that most of the of the key individuals that were there are dead. Mm-hmm. So what are you what are you going to investigate later that you haven't already looked into? Right. But he didn't get that information. So Adam, take us into into another one of these interesting stories. Okay. So this one again is one that happened so long ago that there's not a whole lot of information on and I know you're saying well, Adam if you're you've got all these stories that don't have a whole lot of information just hold on I got I got you covered here in a little bit I'll give you more. So this one is John Doe and probably not his real name. But John Doe is a 3-year-old boy and he went missing near Mount Shasta at 6.30 p.m., and this was in the early 1900s. That's why there's not a whole lot of information on it. But he was later found at 11.30 p.m. Now, when they interviewed him about his missing time, this is what he says. He says he was taken into a cave that he thinks was underground. And he knows it should have been dark outside. But anytime he looked toward the mouth of the cave... He saw bright light coming from outside. So here again, we have bright light when it shouldn't be light outside. He said he's with this woman who looks a lot like his grandmother. And at first he thought it was his grandmother. And in this cave, he saw some other things that looked like people, but they were actually robots and they weren't moving. They were just kind of off in the distance and they weren't moving. Now, after a while, he figures out that this woman isn't his grandmother. And even though she's nice and polite to him, he concludes that she's also a robot. He said that there was some like unusual lights coming from her head when he would look at her. Not something you typically see in a grandmother. No, my grandmother doesn't have weird lights coming from her head. <laughs> Mine either. And my grandmother listens to this. So grandma. Well, wait. No, no, we figured that one out. Yeah. <laughs> so, Grandma, if you do have weird lights coming from your head, please let me know. I would, I would like to know this. Anyway, she started to get pushy, and she took out some sticky paper, and she put it on the ground in front of him. And here's where it gets weird. She asked him to defecate on it. When he said he didn't have to go, she got mad and kept pestering him to defecate on this sticky paper. You know what? If I'm kidnapped by a robot and kept in a cave, I'm I'm gonna have to go. Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I'm probably gonna have already gone. Yeah, he he's a he's a lot <laughs> a lot stronger a person than me. Um, he said he noticed other things around the perimeter of the cave that were like guns or weapons of some sort, but they had dust all over them. So that's where the end of his story, the end of his. I guess, interview is, but it's kind of weird because he calls it a cave, but could it be a cave? You know, could it be the inside of a ship? Maybe yeah. maybe it is a cave, but why are there robots everywhere that aren't in use, covered in dust? And there's this one weird robot that keeps asking him to poop on paper. Maybe it's a, like an alien uh, maintenance shop. See, could be. Yeah, fix all their broken down robots. One robot got weird. Yeah, Grandma Robot um, starts working. Yeah, you know, and has this desire to. It's make, a weird make glitch. Poop. Yeah, it's a weird poo poo glitch yeah. or something. I had the poop button turned on. Right. It's like, man, 
which is really weird. We got to we got to put something over that switch. Right. So Matt, save us from my poop story. <laughs> All right, this next one. Now this next one is really weird. As if Adams wasn't weird enough. Um, in February of 1978, um, Stephen Kubacki uh, disappeared and was missing for 15 months. 15 months and woke up in a field wearing different clothes with no knowledge of where he had been or how he got there. How does that happen? Uh, yeah. And so, so Stephen was a student at the time uh, and he went missing in, in the, the Michigan, the Great Lakes area. It's an area known as the Great Lakes Triangle, which, you know, in, uh, you know, if you do much uh, studying into this, this is almost like the North American Bermuda Triangle. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a there is a book that was written about the Great Lakes Triangle that um, explains a lot of the disappearances and the ships and the boats and the aircrafts uh, that have uh, that have disappeared in that area. So Stephen had said he was going to go skiing. Now they found his skis and his poles on the beach of Lake Michigan and footprints on the ice leading up to the lake said when they flew over it to investigate it, the footprints just appeared to stop like he stopped, but then never went anywhere else. They found his backpack in that same area. Now on May 5th of 1979, 15 months later, Stephen walks up to his father's door and says, I don't remember much of what happened, but he woke up in a field 40 miles from his father's house, lying in a meadow, wearing clothes that didn't belong to him. He had a small satchel beside him with maps that weren't his. And where he woke up was 700 miles from Lake Michigan. Now, I don't think anybody is going to say, hey, can I trek 700 miles in 15 months? Nope. But trekking 700 miles with people looking for you? Mm-hmm. How in the world? How do you stay gone that long and then have no recollection of what happened? Right. You know, that is really, really strange. Now, reporters tried to get Stephen to talk to someone um, Talk to a psychiatrist, you know, somebody that could maybe help get some of these memories out. But he said he didn't he didn't need to because he didn't have any psychological problems after this. And, you know, he he went on to to get a master's in linguistics and a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. Um, and, and David Politis did get in touch with him. But, you know, he refused an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know. We see that a lot in cases that may or may not be paranormal. Somebody just wants to get on with their life. Right. You know, they they don't want to be defined by some weird occurrence, Mm -hmm. you know, that happened. You know, that's when we talk about people don't like to come forward with things that they've seen or or things that they've discovered um, because they really don't want that kind of microscope placed over their lives. They, They just want to move on. And say, okay, this is not who I am. This is just something that happened to me, and let's just drop it. Right. You know, so we we don't have any more details than that, but the details we do have are bizarre. 
Right. All right. So I've got one. And for me, this is one that hit most of those key points that David Politis mentions. And this is the case of Jared Adadero. Now, Jared Adadero was two years old, and his father allowed him to go on a hike with some family friends. He fell behind the group for just a second, and they turned around, and that was the last time anyone ever saw him. They didn't hear a sound, nothing. Now, within a couple hours of him disappearing, searchers were all over that mountainside. And they never found a single trace of Jared. There were no clothes, no blood, no hair, nothing. They brought the search dogs out, and the search dogs couldn't find a scent, and they were doing that weird walking around in circles thing. So three years later, there were two men that were hiking in this exact same area. And there's a boulder field just off this trail where Jared went missing. Well, these men decided they were going to climb to the top of this boulder field. And it's about at the top, a thousand foot elevation. So they start hiking up it and they get about halfway. So about 500 foot in elevation. And one of the men stumbles across a brand new looking child's shoe. So they, you know, the guy in an interview said, I just knew there was going to be a kid standing right there that had just stepped out of this shoe. Because that's what it looked like. Kid just kicked it off his foot. Well, they started looking around, and on a log not too far away from that, they found a skull cap, so the the top part of the skull, and one single tooth. Yeah, not a hat. Right, not, not that kind of skull cap, but the cap of the actual skull, and one single tooth laying on this log. So they called in search and rescue, and search and rescue came all over this boulder field to search for a body. They found nothing else of the body, but they did find Jared's jacket, his other shoe, and pants turned inside out. And that's it. And so what did they decide happened? Well, the theories get put out there because no cause of death could actually be determined because they didn't have a body that a large cat got him. So, again, we're back to this large cat. Seems logical. Right. Except. <laughs> no, it don't. Except for, let's go through all of these. If, 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 if it was a large cat, he's walking down the trail with people, and a large cat jumps him. When a large cat jumps you, the kid's going to scream. You'll probably hear the large cat make a noise. There's going to be blood probably torn pieces of clothing. They didn't find any of that. There was no damage to his jacket at all. Yeah, that's what I was fixing to ask. Yep. Is how, how was his jacket? His jacket didn't even look like it had been outside for three years. It looked like he took it off, just took it off and laid it there. So no blood on the jacket, no ripping of the jacket. Okay. The pants being inside out. I've never heard of a large cat taking someone's pants off and turning them inside out. The only damage to the pants was where birds had kind of picked a way to use the material for nesting, which happens. Um, His shoes, like we'd said, were brand new looking. There weren't scuff marks. There was no weathering. There was no nothing. They were pristine. 
so they didn't look like they were sitting outside either. If a large cat had got him, it would have had to drag him up that boulder field. There would be scuff marks all over the toes of the shoe if they drug him up that way. If it drug him up backwards, his shoes would have gotten pulled off. They wouldn't have made it 500 feet up. So you throw that at people and people go, well, either he or someone must have taken his clothes off then prior to him getting attacked by the cat. How? The people lost sight of him for just a second when he fell behind. When did anybody have time to take his clothes off? And, even even the boy. And why yeah. would they? Right. And how did they then turn up 500 feet if a cat got him after, let's say, he took his clothes off and a cat got him? Did the cat go back down and get his clothes and bring him back up? No. So how did his clothes end up up there? Yeah. And And, where are his other clothes? Right. You know he had on socks. You know he had on underwear. Where where is that? Yeah. And and so I I know what some of you were probably thinking. Well, he was abducted and and murdered, you know, by a serial killer Mm -hmm. or, or something along those lines. And don't think that this isn't something that comes up every time that David Politis does one of these investigations where, you know, a body is found mm-hmm. or, or, or body parts are found. So, you know, it would, it would seem like, okay, you know, if, if a big cat can't take this kid's clothes off, then a human being did it. Right. And that human being must have been the demise of Jared, mm-hmm. you know, the problem with this is, and there's there's numerous ones, is that these areas of these parts, they're just not places that a serial killer is going to just hide out waiting. And hope somebody passes yeah. by. You know, and, and some of these people have been found in areas that are considered out of bounds mm-hmm. for the park. And you have to get a special permit in order to hike or camp these certain areas because... They're either they're not as well mapped or they're they're difficult to reach by foot. And that if there was a problem, getting help up there uh, would be difficult. Right. You know, or or next to impossible. Well, so so why why would why would a serial killer pick a place like this to hide out and wait? Not that it's impossible. It just seems highly improbable. Right. You know, that you could you could chalk up Jared's case or cases similar to, you know, an individual, you know, much like the the Stacey Harris case, an individual hiding out just on the chance that a victim is going to just wander up. And, And also, Jared was not that far away from his parents. No. I mean, you know, he wasn't like missing for, you know. 30 minutes, an hour, and then they realized, hey, he's not here. I mean, he was here, and then he he fell back, and then he was gone. Right. So it, it happened quickly. That's what I was about to say, and, yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm no serial killer. At least I don't think I am, you know. Um, but if, if, if I'm looking for a victim like that, 
I'm going to look for somebody that's alone, mm-hmm. you know, or or at least in pairs where I could probably manage both of them. Right. If I had a weapon. Well, and there were no tracks found right there where they searched. So if Jared, if there was somebody hanging out at the side of this trail waiting to snatch Jared, where are the tracks or any evidence of someone hanging out next to the trail? They didn't find any of that. They didn't hear anything. Now, if you've got kids, if you're, you and your kids are walking and y'all are walking up a trail and somebody reaches out from the bushes and grabs your youngest kid, what is the first thing they're going to do? They're going to scream. They're going to scream bloody murder. And they're scared. They don't know what's grabbed them. They don't know. So you would have heard a scream. You would have heard Jared make a noise of some kind. And you would have heard them getting away in the woods. These people, it's not like they were 30 yards away and might not have heard the rustling of the leaves. They were right there. Yeah. They turned around. He was gone. They walked a few steps back to where he was last seen. They would have known somebody was taken off with him. That goes for the cat, too. They would have heard that. So, yeah. So if you're thinking that way, you know, you got to imagine somebody out hiding in these woods sees Jared's parents come by and then sees Jared and is like, you know, quietly going, hey, little boy, come here. Does this rag smell like chloroform to you? Right. You know, and then would are they going to vacuum seal, you know, this kid's clothes, mm-hmm. his shoes and his jacket, which were essentially in in brand new condition, right. you know, only to stage them later to where they had had no exposure to the elements. Right. And why would you stage them in an area 500 foot up off a trail that probably nobody's going to walk in? Right. Nobody's going to find it. Right. If you save the clothes, then you're saving them to stage them. You're saving them to be found. Right. You're not going to put them in a place that are probably not going to be found. At least not for a long time. Right. And so let's say you do that. You keep them for a year and then you put them out there and you think, okay, somebody's going to find them. There would be weather damage. Sure. Just after a couple weeks, the shoes and the clothes would be bleached from the sun because it's on a boulder field. You know, the sun hits it quite a bit in a boulder field. It's going to bleach it. Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't wear a pair of shoes every day for two weeks without them beginning to look worn or show some evidence that somebody's been wearing them. Right. You know, much less sit out in the weather. Right. So, you know, the serial killer theory doesn't really hold a lot of water, especially in this case, but not in a lot of the other cases either. Um, Just, you know, again, it makes you think Jared was not there for a period of time. Right. Nor were his clothes. Right. And he was gone. And and for whatever reason, these were the only things that came back. Mm -hmm. Now. We, we've kind of thrown out some hypotheses and everything, but I stumbled across a personal experience that a guy put on Reddit um, where he believes that he was almost snatched. And let's go through this, and you'll see that a, a lot of this matches to these 411 cases. And... It's really weird, and he put this out there because he started reading about the 411 stories. Now, this happened 
near water, near the Illinois River, and it happened near mountains, and it happened right near Plum Island. Right near it. Right near it. So I think that's the most country thing I've said all episode. If I'd have said pert near, that would have been oh, even we, better. Yeah. We, well, we'd had some folks not know what that meant. Right. <laughs> a pert near got took. So here's his personal account. I'm going to read it verbatim. He said, I had a very strange experience 12 years ago in Starved Rock State Park, Illinois. It was so bizarre at the time, I never discussed it. I began reading the missing 411 stories a few weeks ago and realized what I encountered fits into the missing 411 profile. Additionally, since many of the missing 411 stories border on the unexplained and bizarre, I feel what I encountered was not unique, that it was part of an actual phenomenon. Here's my story. I was visiting my girlfriend in Chicago. On a sunny and calm winter day, we decided to go for a hike at Starved Rock State Park. I'm an avid hiker, and being on leave from Iraq, I wanted to take in some cool, fresh air. We hiked the park for several hours. In late afternoon, we started heading back to the car. About a half a mile away from the parking lot, we came into an area where tree branches were broken and pulled towards or over the trail. Most of the branches were broken high up, I'd say eight foot and more off the ground. I lived in Washington before going to Iraq and knew something of Sasquatch areas. So I told the girlfriend it looked like a squatch area due to the branches broken off high up, and pulled over the trail. That's about the time things started to get strange. Soon after mentioning this, I felt like someone was staring at me. It's like if you go into a room with a lot of people and someone is focused on you, you get an uneasy feeling and can tell you're being watched. It was like that, but stronger. I started to look around to see who was watching me. It was winter, and the forest was visible hundreds of feet in all directions. There was a group of walkers several hundred feet behind us and no one in front of us, but I saw no one staring at me. As we passed through the, quote, squatch area, I began to have the feeling someone was behind me following us. I looked around and listened, but saw and heard nothing. There was just those people 400 foot back or so on the trail, and they were walking and talking amongst themselves. They weren't looking our way. The sense of someone being behind me was persistent, so I kept looking behind me, I'd say at least twice a minute, but there was just the group way back. The feeling of being watched is one thing, but feeling like someone is close behind you is something else. It's a little more disturbing. So I told the girlfriend to go further up in front of me, and I let her go about 20 feet in front because I had a strong sensation of a nearby presence just behind me. So I turned around not more than 30 seconds since the last time I looked back, and there was this woman there. She was walking, but coming up on me fast. There was something way off about her speed. She was walking when I spotted her, but her speed was much faster than her gait. It was as if she was on one of those people-mover escalators like in an airport. She was coming up fast, and was, I'd say, no more than 15 or 20 feet behind me when I saw her. I was rather alarmed and glared at her. She stopped when our eyes met. I gave her the... What the hell are you doing coming up on me like that look? We stood there staring at each other. Neither of us moved. She had her head cocked back and to the left and looked at me from the corner of her eyes in a slightly alarmed, you caught me type of look. She was completely normal looking. 
like a local Chicago lady, late 50s, wearing a bright red winter coat, gloves, slacks, etc. In hindsight, there are a few other things besides her speed which stand out. The first thing is there was no sound, no footsteps, no rustling in the woods, nothing to tell me to turn around other than the strong sense of something behind me which I'd had for a bit. At the speed she was moving, she would have would have had to have been running hard, but I heard no footsteps. She was not breathing hard and her mouth was closed. Her gait was a walking gait. She was not running. However, she was moving towards me at running speed and fast. When she stopped, I'd say she was less than 20 feet from me, and at the speed she was moving, in one or two seconds, she'd have been on me. The next thing that stands out is her features. She had no distinguishing features, none in her hair, skin, or clothing, no shadowing or skin hues, dimples, etc. As a former Army criminal investigator, I know to look for distinctive markings on people and clothing. There were none. I'd estimate her height at 5'10". Her clothes were of uniform coloring and distinct. It was like she just stepped out of a department store. Her bright red coat was pristine with a uniform hue to it. There wasn't even shading, which there should have been given the clear sky and low sun. After staring at each other for five or ten seconds, I felt like I got my point across, so I turned around and continued walking. The girlfriend had not noticed anything and had continued walking. I took about three steps and realized there was no way that she could have come up from that group in 30 or so seconds since I'd last looked back. There was also nowhere to come from either side. Visibility at that point, like I said, had been hundreds of feet all around. I said to myself, no way, and spun back around. She was gone. She had simply vanished. I checked the group behind us, and no one had a red coat on or was looking at us. There was no one else around, and there had been no sounds other than my footfalls. The woman just vanished. From that point, it took us about 10 minutes to reach the car. For the remainder of the walk, I did not feel like I was being stared at or followed. I have never been back to Starve Rock State Park and have no intention of going back. The whole thing was bizarre. How was I supposed to tell anyone about this? So I never have. My mental state was fine. I have a high IQ and a 20-year career in a STEM field following Army service. At the time, I was working a DOD IT contract in Iraq. I was well-rested and relaxed being on vacation with the girlfriend. There were no drugs or alcohol involved. These are strictly prohibited in my line of work. I've carried this experience for 12-plus years, unable to talk about it, because it was so exceptional and unbelievable. So, wow, right? I mean, that's all I can say. We're talking about a guy who may have just avoided getting taken in one of these 411 situations. And girlfriend goes up in front of him, not paying attention. Here's somebody. He didn't hear. Bang, she's there. Right. If he had not turned around and seen her, could she have grabbed him and blinked out, vanished and taken him? You know, what is this? Was she a decoy for something? Was she what takes everybody? I mean, that to me fit, and I wanted to share it with everybody. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, um, like I said, we 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 chose um, several of these stories because they were some of the most fantastic. They were local to us. 
or they just, you know, they're the epitome of what David Politis is going over in his series of books. Now, if you want to go and look into these cases further, um, the missing 411 book series, uh, as of 2017, has six books. Mm-hmm. The He said the original book he had to divide into two sections. It got too long. So he's got an East and a West United States or West East and West North America um, were, are the first two books. And then, you know, he's come across so many of these cases. He's written, you know, additional books. Um, but these books are written from you know, uh, the perspective of, of a cop. I mean, they're written almost like police reports. They're very, you know, the, the research is very thorough. It's very detailed based on the details that he could capture. So, you know, if, if this is something that really interests you, uh, I suggest you go out and find these books there. There is a documentary that came out, I think May of last year, um, called missing four one one. Um, and it does go into some details about um, some of the cases that um, are, are are more um, more prominent uh, in Politis's research. But um, what do you think? I mean, we've talked about everything from UFO abduction, Bigfoot. Um, you know, we hadn't really mentioned this, but. Um, the idea of dimensional portals mm-hmm. or time slips. I mean, you know, in the case of uh, Stephen Kubacki, you know, he he doesn't recall what he's been doing for the last 15 months and wakes up wearing clothes that aren't his with, you know, items that don't belong to him 700 miles away from where he started. Mm-hmm. So, again, there's there's this idea of, Search and rescue couldn't find these people or evidence of these people until they just showed up again. It makes you believe they weren't there. Right. So where were they? Were they abducted? Did they fall into a time slip? Did they did they enter a dimensional portal? You know, there there is there there is a story that explains how a woman uh, had gotten separated from her group and was lost. And in her her story is that she's she's screaming and yelling at the group that's standing in front of her. They can't see or hear her. And she feels something that she could almost beat against and and just fought against it so much. And then, bam, she's through and she's back and she tells them, I could see you. But you couldn't see me. You couldn't hear me. I was screaming your names. Um, and, and these stories like this abound in these books, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, these things are unexplained and, or they've been, they, they've tried to explain them. Um, but their, their theory of what happened doesn't fit the evidence. Right. You know, so if, if this is something that, that really gets you going, you know, I recommend these books. Uh, or at the minimum, watch watch the documentary if you've only got a couple of hours to kill. Yeah, um, go to Can Am Missing. Yeah, and that's where can, you can buy yeah. the buy the books. It's yeah. Canadian American Missing. Yeah, and there's a and there's a lot of stories on there that you can read without actually you know picking up. The, they're all like short synopsis uh, of the sample stories that you can get. 
Um, but again, they're, they're, they're very, very good and they're very interesting. And, you know, they, some of them date all the way back to the, the mid to late 1800s. Right. Um, so yeah, do some of your own looking into, I know, um, you know, like I said at the beginning of the show, I was familiar with these cases, but I had no idea, you know, what, what we were, what we were going to find when we started looking into this. So, um, you know, I think as far as the, uh, missing 411 stuff that, that pretty much brings it to a close, you mm-hmm. know, um, remember, uh, next week, spoiler alert, right. Uh, we're going to be talking about champ, the Lake Champlain. Oh, I'm sunk. <laughs> if, if I can't say it on this show, how am I going to say it on the next one? <laughs> the Lake Champlain monster. Um, and be looking for our survey on what you guys would like to hear Adam and I research mm-hmm. for the show coming up after that. And we, we've got some uh, some pretty cool stuff coming up in, in July. So yep. be sure and go and check out our website. It's graveyardpodcast.com. There uh, you can find information about Adam and myself. You can find the links to purchase our merchandise. You can become a patron. And, uh, of course, you can listen to the show. Uh, Go and follow us on your social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Graveyard Tales. And and join our Facebook group. That's a good place to interact with us, share stories, and find some stories from some of our other members, and get inside information on upcoming episodes. And as always, please rate and review us on iTunes. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon.